The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. are back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late for some of you, but we got a really, really exciting show lined up for you guys tonight. Genevieve, how you doing? I'm doing quite all right. How are you? It's It's been rough. It's been a rough week for me, yeah. personally. I'm sure I'm going to manage to spread all my germs even via radio, so oh, I know. No, it's it's uh, <laughs> It's been chilly here in Southern California. I heard that in New York... When you say chilly, are, you mean it, it's below 80 degrees. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's 72 degrees. No, but seriously, in New York, right? And I guess this is an argument for uh, global warming. Uh, <laughs> in New York, people are apparently are having a blast surfing, walking around in t-shirts and shorts. And over here, we can't find enough things to throw on to uh, keep warm. So no, that's like my f- honestly, my family um, back in back in Germany. Um, yeah, they're telling me I, I don't really understand Fahrenheit, so I'm going to say this in Celsius. But they're telling me it's like 15 degrees Celsius there, and it's so bad that. The flowers and the trees have started blooming again. What? And it, this only happens in, in spring, right? I mean, yeah, that's yeah, why yeah. it's called spring. The oh, fact, is that why? <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, it's freaky. Uh-huh. That I mean, it's going to throw the whole cycle out of sync because that's so the weird. blossoms are coming out now. If it starts snowing again, yeah. it's going to like literally kill off the cycle. Yeah, no, that's crazy. Uh, we hope that everybody had a, a great Christmas or, you know, whatever. Uh, Hanukkah, anything. Yeah, tradition they, they choose mm-hmm. to to celebrate and observe and in company of their loved ones. And, you know, if you were uh, by yourself, we hope that you had a, a great time. Anyways, quick shout out to everybody listening to us on iHeartRadio, Ustream. And if you're catching the podcasted version of this show, greetings to you, sir and or madam. We hope and you're doing lovely. And in between or anything else. As anything in between. Nowadays. Absolutely. Tonight we have a really exciting show, man. Here we tackle all kinds of topics. Paranormal topics, uh, conspiracy topics. Uh, we also dabble in pop culture and whatnot. And uh, we have come to the conclusion that the U.S. is a, it's a very interesting place. <laughs> interesting. It, it's an interesting place where some of these kind of fringe topics tend to thrive. And uh, talking to you from what you tell me and from what I've seen in my limited travels, the U.S. is exceptional in that regard, different, it seems. Different. Yeah. So uh, tonight we have a, a guest that calling him a gentleman and a scholar is quite fitting. Uh, <laughs> and tonight's guest is Professor Christopher Bader from uh, Chapman University. But you know what? I'm going to let Genevieve do the introductions as uh, it's a custom. So Genevieve, take it away. Well, as Frank mentioned, um, we'll be talking to Dr. Christopher Bader tonight. He's the author of Paranormal America, as well as America's Four Gods. Dr. Bader is a professor of sociology at Chapman University, focusing largely on the sociology of religion as well as the paranormal. He's currently working on the second edition of Paranormal America with a heavy emphasis on field research. He's attended countless Bigfoot hunts, ghost tours, paranormal investigations and psychic events to date, making him truly the go-to guy when it comes to all things paranormal in this field of research. This is West of the Rockies' first time tackling this topic from the angle of sociology, so we'll be picking his brain to the max. So with that, 
I'm absolutely honored to be able to welcome Dr. Beda onto our show tonight. Thank you so much for taking the time for being with us tonight. I know you're, you're quite busy educating our, uh, the youth of tomorrow, <laughs> uh, the people that will take over the world. Very kind way to put it. <laughs> but uh, no, we really appreciate it. You know, this book, it's, it's really great. I'm not just saying it because, uh, uh, you know, we're talking to you. But honestly, this should, I, I highly recommend if anybody is interested in these kind of topics, whether you're hosting a show like this or a podcast or you're a researcher of, of paranormal topics, I highly recommend it because it is full of very, very interesting information that uh, personally I felt it almost gave me like an eagle eye view of the uh, paranormal landscape here in the U.S. and I found that incredibly fascinating. Why don't you tell us how did you get involved in the research of the paranormal? Uh, sure. Uh, well, I'm, I'm one of those kids, like um, a lot of people, like you, Frank, when we talked a while back. Yeah. <laughs> I've, always had an, I've always had an interest in the subject. I'm one of those kids who grew up watching In Search Of and Unsolved Mysteries. Right. So I had just a, um, a personal interest in the paranormal for a long time before I became an academic. And once I started... Uh, the the path to being a sociology professor, mm -hmm. I, I started to think, well, the paranormal is really something that should be studied from a sociological perspective. So I've just made it part of my research. So the you know the initial impetus of this is just I was one of those kids who looked for Bigfoot in his backyard, mm -hmm. and wondered if that noise in the closet was a ghost, and watched in search of, and it just happened to turn into part of my career. Like you just mentioned, you're you're a professor of sociology and. It seems a lot of times that scholars and scientists and the, the more uh, academically educated seem to shy away from uh, looking into a lot of paranormal topics. Researching this book, did you encounter that kind of attitude from your colleagues? Oh, sure. All the time. I just don't care. <laughs> sure, I get that a lot. But, um, for some reason, um, people assume when you're studying the paranormal that that must mean that either truly believe in it or you've had an experience, whereas that's kind of silly if you really think about it. There's all kinds of sociologists who study criminals who aren't criminals themselves. Right. There's all kinds of sociologists who study the effects of drugs who don't take drugs themselves. Just because you study something doesn't necessarily mean that you believe in it or have had that type of experience. But, you know, there's something about the paranormal definitely where it carries that kind of stigma where people might think you're kind of weird if you're too interested in it or study it. Mm -hmm. But I just... I just don't really care. <laughs> it's, it's, it's never it's never bothered me too much. How do your students feel about it? Are you like the cool teacher in school? At least that's the vibe I get. Like if you were my professor, I'd be like, yeah, you know, I'm with Vader. <laughs> that's that's my it, dude right it, there. Well, <laughs> it's funny because um, that is one thing that I've found very interesting is that uh, students are just fascinated with the paranormal. Mm -hmm. I, I don't teach a class on the paranormal, but when I teach a class on religion, I'll have a, a short section on the paranormal. When I uh -huh. teach a class on... Um, on the sociology of culture, I'll have a section on the paranormal. And I definitely get the sense from students that they wish that could be the entire class. And and um, I've definitely noticed over time students have become more um, interested in the paranormal and also more knowledgeable about it over time, which is kind of interesting. Have you had, whether it was, you know, before your, your uh, academic studies or after, have you had any uh, brush with the paranormal or something that you couldn't explain that you could possibly attribute to the paranormal? I sure wish, uh, sure wish I could say I had, but I, I have not. In fact, I'm kind of considering myself paranormal poison for some reason. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I put myself in these kind of situations all the time. I've been in lots of haunted houses and Bigfoot hunts and, 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 and things like that. But 
it just tends to uh, stay away from me. I don't know why. Literally, I lived in a house uh, with two other people where mm-hmm. the both those people were regularly seeing a ghost, but that ghost just decided to leave me alone. Oh, wow. So uh, I guess I should qualify and say that I've been in situations where other people mm-hmm. say I've had a paranormal experience. I've been on a Bigfoot hunt yeah. where I heard a knocking on a tree, mm-hmm. and the Bigfoot hunters I was with say unequivocally that was a Bigfoot tree knocking. I oh, just wow. heard a knock on a tree. So... Um, if you ask them, they would say, yeah, when that Bader guy was with us, he heard Bigfoot knocking on a tree. Mm-hmm. If you ask me, I just say, I heard something knocking on a tree. I don't know if it was a woodpecker. Maybe it was a Sasquatch. I just don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. And I've been in a situation where I've been talking to a person who was supposedly possessed. Mm, so, okay. you know, so it, it depends, Frank, on what your definition of a, of a paranormal experience would be. I mean, I'm talking to someone who says they're possessed and is kind of growling at me and doing all kinds of funny, weird stuff. <laughs> right. And so it would depend on your definition. I don't, I don't have any reason to think that that person was possessed or not, really. I was just talking to a person who was on the ground making noises. Right. Um, so it's, I'm not trying to be evasive. I'm just, I'm just saying that I have never, um, for example, just full-on seen a UFO. I've mm-hmm. never had something grabbed me or touched me. I've never seen a Sasquatch dead on, but I have been in places where there's been noises where I'm just not interpreting it the same way. I'm hearing a noise and other people might say that's a ghost or a Bigfoot. And to me, I don't know what it was. It was just a noise. You know, it's really interesting because I found myself in very similar situations. I mean, the paranormal seems, and I guess that's why it's not really a science, right? It's very hit and miss. Uh, You can't Mm -hmm. uh, replicate the uh, results that maybe happen, you know, the weekend before or what have you. So I I can totally relate to what you're saying. And every now and then I am encountered with something that I, I really can't explain. Um, could I just quickly ask, out of all those kind of weird experiences you've had or the ones that people have told you are paranormal, if you had mm-hmm. to pick one, what would you say was the most convincing or at least the weirdest? Huh, that's, that's, uh, that's tough. Um, I didn't find, I, I never found anything particularly um, particularly convincing. I mean, I, I, guess, I, I guess if I had to pick one, Mm-hmm. I would say when I was out in Bigfoot hunters and these knocks that they heard on the trees followed fairly closely um, us smelling something really terrible. Mm. Oh, wow. And, and so their interpretation of that was we smelled a Sasquatch and then it made a noise. Um, you have to understand I'm someone who this was deep in East Texas and in, in in woods, I'd never been in woods like this in my life. I have mm-hmm. no idea what can make smells like this. I have no idea what can make sounds like this. Mm-hmm. I'm operating completely in the dark. Um, so I'm, I, I guess if I had to pick one, I would never claim that I've experienced a Sasquatch because all I did was smell something and hear something. But those are two things that you know and, and I know from from Bigfoot encounters mm-hmm. or supposedly go along with those encounters, and I did hear and smell those things. Right. So I, the lady who was possessed, I just think she might have been drunk. So I'm, <laughs> I'm not too, I, I, I don't go to bed at night worrying about the possessed lady. And uh, um, so, uh, see, so yeah, I would have to say, and, and the various other noises I've heard are very sort of indistinct. And um, so I guess I would have to say the Bigfoot experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by that same criteria, people would say I'm possessed all the time. But uh, we're not here to talk about me. Uh, Chris, you would think that doing a book like this, where you are literally examining the uh, culture, if I could use the word, of the paranormal, 
I mean, it's no easy mm-hmm. task. How did you begin your research for this book? Sure. Well, there, well there's two parts of the research of this book, really. There's the one part is is surveying people that we uh, what hadn't been done before our book um, to a very to a significant degree was just literally trying to answer the questions of who who does believe in the paranormal, what kinds of things they believe in, and are they different from other people? Because there's a lot of stereotypes going on, mm-hmm. uh, going around about paranormal believers and experiencers. Right. So one part was survey research, the other part was field research. And um, myself and my co-authors just believed that um, we didn't want to um, study something or try to write about something which is so experiential in nature without going out and getting out from behind our desks and actually exploring it. That's a complaint you hear a lot about people, um, particularly of, of sort of your diehard art skeptics, is that they never get out from behind their desk and actually go investigate this stuff. And, right. and we wanted to spend the time to do it. So um, the hardest part really was just getting, talking to people and getting people to trust us, to let us uh, research them and spend time with them, because frankly, um, they... A lot of people had concerns, and as much as I hate to say it, rightfully so, because a lot of people do this kind of thing, that, that people that we were going to study them and then turn around and make fun of them. Right. That was mm-hmm. going to be what we were going to do. There's, there's far too many of those books out there where, with a nod, nod, wink, wink, people go out and spend time with people who've had paranormal experiences and turn around and make them look like fools. Right. Mm-hmm. The stuff that they write. and. So I would say that was the hardest part of this project, was just getting people to trust us, to spend time with us, to uh, realize that we're just going to talk about what we see. They may like it or they may not like it, but our goal isn't to uh, go to a bar and make fun of the people we spent time with with our buddies. You know, early in the book, you made a, a, a distinction between two types of uh, beliefs, one being the uh, Beliefs and experience focus on enlightenment, uh, and I'm reading from the uh, book. Um, focus on enlightenment and meaning uh, personal, internal, and spiritual growth. And the second is involved in the paranormal as a form of discovery. They hope to find compelling evidence for the existence of a phenomenon not currently recognized by institutional science. Was it hard to narrow it down to those two, or was the line pretty uh, clear down the sand uh, to uh, define these two types? Well, sure. I mean, no definition is perfect, and there's always those those types of behaviors and beliefs which sort of fall through the fall through the cracks. But the the reason we came up with that distinction is that we really did notice when we spent time you know, in dif- at different types of events with different types of people who've had different kinds of paranormal experiences mm-hmm. that um, particularly if you imagine someone who is oftentimes visiting a psychic or an astrologer or a tarot card reader. Yeah. I just went and spent uh, spent a whole day with a bunch of a uh, bunch of them at a psychic fair in town here a couple weekends ago. Mm-hmm. And what you don't see there is you don't see people carrying around EMF meters and and uh, holding graph paper and trying to figure out the scientific merit of what's being said. That the people that I would see at, I see at psychic fairs are people who are longing, who have a longing, who want to know something about their lives, who maybe have a problem in their life, they're hoping to get some some feedback or some advice on. Mm-hmm. And their goal really is to make themselves better people, and they don't care what you think right. about what they're doing. And those types of people... I just, we just found, and this was something that emerged from the time that we spoke to people, we're just fundamentally different from people who go into the paranormal, and their, their idea of investigating the paranormal is, we want to try to document this thing. 
Mm-hmm. And you can really, really see it. I mean, when you spend time with ghost hunters, they almost fetishize their equipment. I mean, that right. sounds really bad. I'm mm-hmm. sorry the way I said that. But um, it's, a, it's really about they're coming out, they're going out there, and they're hoping that this is the time that they get that picture, that they get that video, that they get that um, something on their EMS meter, that they get in the EVP. And a large part of their experience is they're hoping to get something where they could play it for anyone, and that person would say, holy crap, that's amazing. And that's just not the type of um, experience that you see at a psychic fair. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're not saying that one of these types of experience is better than the other, but we did find in our research that people who are into enlightenment, who just want to find out personal knowledge, find out about their futures or their past, and really don't care what you think about the merits of it, we're just quite different from people who are into trying to prove the science of Sasquatch or UFOs or ghosts. Speaking of UFOs, you mentioned the first, uh, I guess, uh, recorded sighting in modern times, and that was the UFO sighting by uh, Kenneth Arnold. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people uh, are probably familiar with that case. He drew this this very interesting uh, illustration of this crescent-shaped UFO with a little right. bubble cockpit in the middle. And to me, I've looked into this a lot of times, but because of the time of the sighting and the fact that obviously now we know that, you know, Nazi Germany at the time was working on all kinds of crazy aircraft, one happens to look eerily similar to what Kenneth Arnold saw. I've always felt like maybe we were not exactly looking at aliens, but with the UFOs specifically, basically my question is, is this phenomena go back centuries or were People, as some claim, have just vivid imaginations or whatever, and that's why they claim to have seen these things, you know, in ancient times. Well, I would say that I would go broader than than you, than you are, Frank, that I would say every paranormal phenomenon goes back centuries. What changes is how we tend to interpret it. That um, that if, if we define a UFO as something strange that was seen in the sky, then you can go back to... Uh, to biblical times and mm-hmm. find incidents that sound like UFO sightings in the Bible. Yeah. You can go back to the 1800s and find airship sightings where people were sighting strange things in the sky, except when they described them, they sounded like blimps or strange mechanical tr- contraptions. Right. And when people would claim that an airship landed, they would oftentimes claim that a strange inventor would come out and talk to them in another language or talk to them in heavy, heavily accented English. And um, what's important about Kenneth Arnold is that it was around his time that these lights in the sky that people have seen for as long as we have written history mm-hmm. started to be widely interpreted as extraterrestrial. Mm-hmm. But Bigfoot sightings go back for a long, long time as well. Um, if you can go back to, um, you know, go back to um, ancient Europe and find stories of the woodwose and ancient uh, wild hairy men living in the woods. Right. And uh, what's changed over time is how that's interpreted to the point we are today where people think it might be uh, uh, some sort of uh, ape creature like a Gigantopithecus. But in a hundred years, I think Bigfoot will still be around, but what will change is how we interpret it. UFOs will still be around, but what will change is how they look. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I was thinking about a few weeks back uh, just how our perception of the 
paranormal has changed. People point at UFOs and, and things of that nature. People have said that, oh, well, you know, those are the fairies that people used to see years back. And the same thing with Bigfoot. For the longest time, people thought that he was just an ape or the missing link. And recently, it seems there is this idea that uh, Bigfoot could possibly be a, another species of, of human. So we, right, yeah. we do see how things uh, uh, change. Why do you think that happens? Do you think we gain a better understanding of it or do we just become more open to other possibilities? That's, that's the million dollar question. It's a mm -hmm. really tough question. Um, you know, one possibility is that there is a real phenomenon, that there is a real Sasquatch and there is a real UFO. There are real UFOs, there are real ghosts. Right. And as our culture changes, our interpretation of those things changes. That we're, we're constantly, our culture is evolving, and that makes us view things in a different light. I mean, just, if I can take it away from the paranormal for a second, think about our evolving nature on views of homosexuality. Right. You only have to go back to the 1970s, or actually the 1980s, where the majority of people in this country said that homosexuality is sinful and abhorrent. Right. And so we've had a major cultural shift, the right one in my opinion. Um, right, of course. Where... Uh, where we've become more tolerant of homosexuality and homosexual relationships, and that changes the way we view what relationships are in our culture. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that relationships never existed. Um, they, they have, but our na the nature of relationships and what we think they are and what we think proper relationships are evolve over time. It may be the same with UFOs. Maybe there's always been a phenomena there. That phenomena is real. Right. But when our cultural ideas about what these things might be change, it leads us to view them in a different way. Um, it's also possible that they don't exist at all. Right. That uh, for whatever for whatever reason, our mind needs this kind of myth. It needs to see things like this. Um, there is a tendency for humans to um, to uh, when they see something that they don't understand or can't interpret to place a cultural layer on it. There's no way as a sociologist that we can, you know, I can say which it is. But um, the only thing I can say is that for certain. I think that uh, paranormal researchers are really missing something if they don't look at the cultural aspect of this phenomenon. And honestly, that's really what I love about your book. And, and it's funny that I've gone this long without considering that aspect of, of this whole field, if you will, and, and the field of the, the paranormal that I guess I never really stopped to consider the uh, cultural context that a lot of these things uh, happen. Now, one of the things that becomes pretty clear early in the book is that you have the, the mainstream beliefs and more of the fringe beliefs, right? And by mainstream, we can say that that is the major religions. And on the fringe, you have the, the paranormal beliefs. And it's almost like they're opposites of the, of the same battery, uh, if you will. Was that as clear cut as it looks or is there something missing in that? Or is the U.S. literally divided between that, the mainstream religious and the fringe paranormal? I wouldn't say it's it's this huge um, it's this huge divide um, mm -hmm. where it's really clear cut. You can find um, a lot of people who believe in in both. Um, what we were trying to do when we were talking about religion versus the paranormal, and maybe versus is even the wrong word, is we were just saying that these are two things, two bodies of belief which are very similar. Um, both religion and the paranormal involve belief in higher powers or supernatural powers above what we can document properly. Mm -hmm. um, and they're based on, essentially at this point, faith. At some point, maybe, some people in the paranormal will be able to document to the point where it, it moves beyond faith. 
But what is different between religion and the paranormal is that um, there are certain of these supernatural beliefs that um, culture decides these are the truly acceptable ones. These are the ones mm, which are right. going to become the, um, the main content for major religious beliefs. And the U.S. is a majority Christian country. It still is, despite um, the increasing diversity over recent years. And, right. and so you are much more likely to find someone in the United States who believes in the uh, divinity of Jesus than you are someone who believes in UFOs. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some people who believe in both. What you find, I don't know if you ever lo- have looked into very conservative religion and what they tend to believe about the paranormal. We spent some time with people like this, but... Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, when you get to the very, very, very conservative end of Christianity in the United States, the interesting thing is they actually believe in the paranormal. They just don't believe it's what you think it is. Right, right. And, uh, if you go into a Christian, uh, conservative Christian bookstore, you'll find books about UFOs and Bigfoot and psychic powers. They just say it's all the devil. It's the right. devil doing yeah. it. Yeah. That the devil makes flying saucers appear to draw you away from Christ. And um, I even read one, have one book in my collection that said that... Uh, Bigfoot is a demon that's meant to draw you away from true Christianity. Wow. And the author even claimed with no support whatsoever, it was one of the most bizarre claims I'd ever seen, that only witches and lesbians see Bigfoot. Oh, wow. <laughs> very specific. I can, I can, yeah, that, it was very specific and extremely untrue. It's, it's, it's funny because I've noticed that over the years. I've encountered people, and, and they're great people, they're good people, they, they have some interesting and valid points to make a lot of times. And I have seen that a lot of people tend to just take all the paranormal and just say it's all satanic or devil inspired, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, one of the things that I've seen an influx of in the last, you know, 10, 15 years is the belief that all of these things are evil and satanic, but the people that say it are pretty hardcore conspiracy theorists. They believe the, the new that. world, the new world order and things like that. And, you know, I subscribe to the Bible for a lot of things. I believe that there's some really interesting, fascinating and important information for sure that we will understand, I think, in a future date. But I am constantly surprised by how much that belief has been growing lately. I don't know if it's just because of the distrust that people have on the government. I find a lot of people that say that have real issues with the government, everything from obviously the gun issue to destroying the Constitution, et cetera, et cetera. Have you looked into those groups and what do you make of them? Sure. Um, I have. We have done some survey research on con- conspiracy and groups kind of that, uh, that mingle um, the paranormal and sort of beliefs that these things might be satanic. But the thing is, is while it does appear to be growing, um, it's di- part, of, part of the thing that's tough to figure out when you're doing research like we do is we're trying to understand what the average American believes. Mm, okay. um, when we, every time we do our surveys, we are surveying a random slice of Americans. So gotcha. just imagine that you could just grab out of the country at random. So we're getting people of all different age groups, racial groups, um, religions, um, and uh, uh, right and left, conservative, liberal. And um, we're trying to find out what does this average slice of America believe. Some of these um, fringe belief systems can grow considerably without ever showing up on that kind of radar. Mm-hmm. That um, If you imagine, Frank, if you grabbed 2,000 people at random, out of all of California, let alone all of the United States, 
there's mm-hmm. a pretty darn good chance you won't find one of those people among among them, even though that belief is growing. Right. And that's that's one of the difficult things with um, researching this kind of subject is that there are all sorts of subjects that are getting on my radar because I listen to all these podcasts, I read all these books and websites so I can keep up on the paranormal. Right. But I always have to try to figure out, when I do a survey next year, should I be asking about shadow people? Mm. Should I be asking about dogmen? Right, <laughs> right. Other strange things that are coming up? Um, do I devote survey space on that? Is it big enough yet? And um, it, that's going to be one of the difficult things as we go forward is just trying to figure out, well, when has something seemed to have gathered enough traction that's worth asking a random national sample? Now, with the issue of uh, Bigfoot, I'm quite fascinated by that myself. I can't say I have a definite theory as to what it could be or if it even exists. But, you know, I hear things from people that I know and people that claim to have seen Bigfoot or, or, or some experience mm-hmm. like that. In this kind of scientific context, there was a, a DNA study not too long ago made. Uh, but the issue to me, it seems that every time these studies are done, or, you know, somebody publishes something or there's like a video out or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. It's always like we're always short of the big piece of evidence. Do you have any, whether, you know, it's your personal opinion from your research, why is Bigfoot and UFOs and all of these things so elusive to science? Well, I mean, yes, yeah, I mean, there's, um, there's different, different possible answers. Here, I, mean, I don't have... Um, I don't have a firm opinion on the reality or not of any of these things. Uh-huh. Um, although I would say, although I guess I could honestly say, I wish Bigfoot existed and I wish UFOs existed. And ghosts <laughs> existed. I just don't know. I don't know that they do or that they that they don't. But, right. But one of the one of the possibilities is that they just don't exist. I mean, that's one possibility. Of course. That's why you can't you can't document something that doesn't exist. And the longer we go without these things being documented. It can raise. It certainly raises doubts in my mind. I, you know, I, I have close friends who have seen a Bigfoot very up close. Mm-hmm. But yet, when we're going on so many years now and nobody can get anything that's conclusive, it it brings doubt in in uh, in our minds. So it's it's possible that these things just don't exist. So the people who are seeing these things are seeing something else and having a misidentification. Um, it's but also, frankly, I mean. Some of the fault lies with the with the way the research is being done. Right. Um, if I can be if I can be honest, that um, that uh, a lot of there is unfortunately a tendency. I know I know a lot of people who are paranormal researchers consider them friends. Mm-hmm. There's a tendency to apologize for people who are obvious hoaxers and to put up with that kind of stuff. Right. And that's mm-hmm. that's the big problem. If if um, if somebody comes to you with a video of Sasquatch and says well, we found this in a garage, we don't know who took it, then you should just immediately say, this is fake, throw it away. That's what any good scientist right. would do. This is obviously a hoax if we can't document where it was. Whenever someone says, well, I had a Bigfoot sighting, I don't remember what day or year it was, mm-hmm. I hear this kind of stuff all the time, I just immediately assume they're lying. <laughs> they don't right. know if they can. So, and unfortunately, I think that um, in the paranormal field, and a lot of this is spurred by the fact that people are trying to understand personal experiences. Right. That they are so des- they're so desperate to try to understand what has happened to them or has happened to a friend that they put up with this stuff. Mm-hmm. That um, the field is hugely riddled with hoaxers and um, bad bad information and um, 
obvious erroneous information and the field needs to police itself there need to be people who just come forward and say you know what you're obviously lying right so you are not we're not going to talk to you anymore and right if the field could do that um that would be i think a huge step towards at least if we're assuming that there's a phenomenon out there ex- that exists and if we just got better we could document it if we are if we're operating under those assumptions right. there is something there that needs to be documented then the people who are trying to do it just need to get better. They need to um, have show enti- complete impatience for people who are hucksters or hoaxers mm-hmm. and um, try to operate above board. It's Sorry f- if that was a rant. No, no, no. no. I, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly, believe me. I think that uh, we should be a little bit more critical if we are trying to decipher what's going on and trying to find the, the truth to all this. But I, I feel sometimes people might be a little scared of the truth because the truth could be that it doesn't exist. But right. I wanted to ask you about, you know, you talk about not just the uh, common folk that get involved in the paranormal. You talk about the more educated, the well-off uh, sector of of our society. You mentioned in your book, uh, Nancy Reagan, who uh, got in a bit of hot water for uh, consulting astrologers on certain White House issues. And I know that there is a a sector of conspiracy theorists that take this as a sign of the elite is involved in occult practices. At the same time, we see one of the reasons why a lot of people, especially some of the people that are in the spotlight, if you will, why they are a little hesitant about coming forward with some paranormal experience that they have had. Case in point, the Phoenix Lights, which you also uh, reference in your book. Right. I, I believe it was the, the vice mayor, Emma Barwood, who uh, was ridiculed for asking for an investigation into the, the Phoenix Lights. The then mayor did that mock press conference with an alien and just made fun of the whole thing. And you fast forward, I think it was 10 years later, the mayor says that, well, you know, I saw the lights and I can't explain them. And and it's like, wow, dude, like you could have just, you know, man up and said, look, we don't know what it is, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to ridiculing it. But he did it because he knew what it would mean to his career. Um, that's actually related to a point I was just going to ask, which was, could you briefly explain to, you know, the listeners how this relates to um, stakes in conformity for people. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, when we're talking about stakes in conformity, and please, please, Genevieve and Frank, stop me when this gets too uh, academic and nerdy. It's <laughs> fascinating <laughs> so far. So, <laughs> um, so uh, when we're talking about stakes in conformity, all we're talking about is that people have different levels of need to be perceived as normal. Some people don't care, are proudly unconventional, really don't care what you think of them. Mm-hmm. Other people are extremely concerned that they be perceived as normal. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. They, want, they want everyone who sees them to think that's a stand-up person, that is a normal pillar of the community. Mm-hmm. And we find that people who, um, the more people are invested in the conventional system, if you want to call it that, the more they tend to um, want to avoid appearing unconventional. If you think of it this way, um, someone who has spent years going to college to try to become a banker, mm-hmm. has gotten a job as a banker and is making a six-figure income, has gotten married, has three kids, a nice house, going to the local church, that person has a lot to lose. They have a lot invested in this so-called normal life, mm-hmm. and they have a lot to lose if people at their work start to think that they're a weirdo. If the people at work think this guy is strange, that might cost you a promotion, that might cost you your job, 
They might cost right. you just your reputation. Mm-hmm. And so what we talk about in the book a lot is that we can talk about the paranormal and think about, well, who is willing to risk their reputation to believe in the paranormal? And the more someone is tied to conventional culture, the less willing they are to at least, as you, as you mentioned, Frank, mm-hmm. say out loud that they've had a paranormal experience. Mm-hmm. And if, if I can add to that real quick, um, I can't tell you the number of times I have had people come up to me after I've given a talk and tell me about their paranormal experiences, and a number of them have been professors. Wow. And on a number of occasions, those same professors were asking me very obnoxious questions during the lecture and essentially making fun of me. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, I, that's, happened, wow. that's happened on two different occasions. Wow. Uh, one time I was giving a talk and talking about uh, beliefs in Bigfoot and who believes in Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. One guy in the back was continually chortling and making funny comments and suggesting in the comment section that it was silly that I was studying these people. Well, three weeks later, he asked me to come into his office and told me about his Bigfoot sighting. Wow. And, uh, and that's sort of a classic example of stakes conformity, that this was a guy who's had an experience, has so much to lose, is so afraid of what mm-hmm. people will think of him if he says that he's had a Bigfoot sighting, that he hides it. And not only does he hide it, he actually tries what we call a diversionary tactic. Yeah. If, um, one thing we learn as sociologists is that it, whenever someone comes up to you and wants to make sure that you know without a doubt that they aren't something or aren't doing something, you should immediately assume that they are. Uh-huh. It's a diversionary tactic. Wow. It's made me a very dark person. I just don't trust anyone. <laughs> Never, uh, if, you know, if someone comes up to me and says, you know what I hate? I really hate gay people. I'm using this example because start looking up the number of conservative Republican congressmen Mm -hmm. who have been at the forefront (laughs) of bashing homosexuality and then been caught in in an affair later on. Wow. So um, I found that over time that um, that I've met a lot of people who don't want to admit to a paranormal experience or belief because they're so afraid of their reputation. Sometimes they'll even deny it. Sometimes they'll make fun of it. But then in private, they will tell me that they've, in fact, had that experience. So I'm not sure that that answers your question, Genevieve, but it's a really powerful effect that when people, people who are extremely tied to a huge part of their identity Mm -hmm. is appearing as normal, the paranormal is something which it still does have in our society. It's getting less, enough of a stigma Mm -hmm. that um, people will try to deny it if they're very much tied to conformity. You know, it's funny because I've been doing this show since 2011. In the course of that time, I've encountered people, you know, fairly prominent people that have had paranormal experiences. And um, one time, actually, this person, you know, when I said, oh, well, you should come on a show and talk about it. Uh, this person, would just, it, it was like I said something bad and they're like no i i can't do that i can never do that i i I can't you know like what are you know my agent and my this and that and it's funny how this is still a very taboo uh subject do you think that that hinders any type of study like the one you're trying to do do you think that people are downplaying maybe the things that they experience in fear of uh, being ridiculed and would that have an effect on getting uh, more accurate data? Well, I don't. I don't think it's going to affect. Um, there, there's there's two types. Of, as I mentioned, there's two types of research I like to do. One is I like to go spend time with people, mm-hmm. and the other is I do surveys. When we do surveys, they are random, and they are um, anonymous. Okay. So, um, 
so generally with those types of surveys, people are willing to, to, I believe we are getting a pretty accurate count of paranormal experiences and beliefs from these surveys because people know that we have no way of identifying them. If I was to go door to door and ask people and they saw me face to face and know I knew their address, they mm-hmm. would probably be much more hesitant. So part of it has to do with the way that we do our research, but certainly it does hinder our um, field research, the extent to which there are prominent people out there who've had paranormal experiences but are keeping it quiet. I would absolutely spend time with those people, try to figure out how the paranormal affects their lives if they were open about their experiences. Um, Related to that, I realize you discussed this um, in the appendix of your book, but um, I'd appreciate you breaking it down a little for us. So... My questions are, how accurate is such a survey? Um, you know, specifically referring to the, the Baylor survey that you carried out, um, well, not you personally, but, you know, that was carried out um, twice now. How accurate is it in giving us a good cross-section of America's belief? Um, a lot of these surveys were conducted um, via phone um, as one of the, you know, means. Mm-hmm. Are there people will, um, who are willing to answer questionnaires perhaps likely to be of a certain type or more likely to believe in certain things. Perhaps those people who refuse to carry out the questionnaire would, you know, have a rather different, maybe quite significant data to contribute. How do you make it a non-biased survey? That's, that's, a, great, that's a great question. There's a lot of questions in there, basically. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> but no, that's, that's great. That's a, fan, that's, that's a very astute uh, group of questions. Um, that um, how do we know from our surveys that, in fact, what we're getting is a cross-section of a uh, of Americans, um, mm-hmm. one way that we know um, is that we is that we know from the from the survey uh, the demographics of each person who has taken the survey. So we know if you are a white female, if you're you know whatever age you are, your level of income, your education. We know that, and we compare that to what we know from the U.S. Census yeah. to find out if um, if our survey by randomly gathering the population we should expect to have about 12 percent african americans if our if our survey has 85 percent african americans that tells us that um, our survey is telling us more about what african americans believe than what americans in general believe if we had on the alternate side if we got no african americans then we then we're missing a a a big part of the united states we're missing 12 percent of uh, the population if we have 80% males, that's problematic. So one thing we do is we compare the demographics of our survey and make sure that they actually represent the general population. That's a big problem that happens with a lot of surveys. Never trust any survey that is done, um, unfortunately, online, and particularly ones that are done on websites because yeah. they tend to attract certain kinds of people and they tend to attract people who um, are interested in the subject. So. Yeah. A lot of surveys about the paranormal that are done on a website like CNN, they'll always do what surveys like this at Halloween, they always massively inflate the percentages of people who believe or have experienced things because who's going to take the time to go take the survey? Someone who's interested in the subject. Um, so one of the things that we do with our surveys is that the surveys are sent to these Americans who have agreed to take a survey about their values and beliefs. That's how it's described to them. Okay. And we don't tell them what those values and beliefs are going to be. Mm-hmm. So um, so we're not, for example, saying, hey, would you like to take a survey of the paranormal? And um, only sending it to the people who say yes, which that would be really problematic because we would have surveys of people who are hugely into the paranormal. If we, um, mm-hmm. Or maybe... Also, people who really hate the paranormal might say, yes, please, let me tell you yeah, how horrible one extreme. <laughs> right. So there's a lot of checks 
like that that we can do that will give us um, that what we feel is a fairly accurate snapshot of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, the survey is um, this particular survey um, for the second edition of the book. We're using a um, a new approach, which we believe is even is even better given societal changes and how people mm-hmm. get contacted. But um, the survey is actually uh, is actually mailed out to people, and they complete it, and they're given a uh, self-addressed stamped envelope, and they send it back, which um, mm-hmm. is it reduces the number of incompletes in the sense that. I'm sure you, you've all probably hung up on survey takers on the phone, I assume, right? Yeah, I can't confirm <laughs> or deny that. I, I couldn't say that I do because I rely on the kind of data that I have <laughs> because it gets too long. Right. So anyway, there's there's all kinds of um, checks and balances that we try to do to try to make sure that our data are as accurate as possible. And mm-hmm. um, the only thing I can say is that I don't have an axe to grind in this mm-hmm. in this issue, that I don't desire to see the paranormal grow or be reduced or be gone. Mm-hmm. And so um, whenever we can find ways to improve the way that we're doing surveys to get our um, to get our percentages up, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, a related question, and I guess this is, it doesn't reply just to, you know, these surveys, it's kind of a, a slightly more generic, but um, I've always wondered how useful it is to offer a monetary incentive. Does that mean people, you know, with a higher income are less likely to respond and how does that affect a survey sure um that's that's a great stuff wow you you, you survey research you got great survey questions um <laughs> good <laughs> one of the uh that, that's an interesting thing about surveys is this has just been years of sociological research has found that people will tend to be more likely to com- to complete a survey if they actually feel like you value their time mm-hmm. actually feel like you care about the fact that you're taking some of their time right the funny thing is if you pay people too much, they get insulted. That, uh, exa- for example, Frank, imagine mm-hmm. I was to give you a hundred-page survey and say, "I'll give you fifty dollars to complete this." You might get pissed because mm-hmm. you might kind of say, "Pissed? Well, I just did twice." But, uh, <laughs> That's um, fine. Uh, the, you might say, "You know what? My time is worth more than the fifty dollars yeah. you're going mm-hmm. to pay me when it's going to take me four hours to complete these, this thing." What mm-hmm. survey researchers have found over time, we're talking about Pew Research, the Gallup organization, all the big survey research organizations, mm-hmm. is they found that people of all levels of income are more likely to complete the survey if you give them around $5. Why is that? Because it's a token amount that says, hey, we appreciate your time. Here's $5 for completing this survey. But it's not so much money that you start to actually calculate yeah. how much your right. time is worth, if that makes any sense. I got gotcha. you. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so uh, a lot of research, and, there, and, and survey researchers have been for a long time, there are actually researchers of survey research, if that makes sense. So it's far too arcane for me. <laughs> I just rely on their findings to deal with surveys. Um, that have looked at what you can do to incentivize people, how you can ensure that certain types of people aren't the only people that are filling out a survey. And um, one of the ways is to give a small token amount of money. And so that's mm-hmm. what uh, the Baylor mm-hmm. Religion Survey did, is it gave people... I believe, don't quote me on this, I believe it was $5 mm-hmm. when you completed the survey. Yeah. That's better than Peter, which I remember would send out surveys giving you one cent or five cent. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow, Peter. Chris, uh, could I get you to just hang on the line for a few minutes while we play a few songs and run some station IDs here? Yeah, sure, of course. Awesome. And we're going to go out with a, a song here on the break. That I actually got this track from uh, a good buddy of mine, Adam Braben, a.k.a. DJ Adam 12. 
Check him out, DJing everywhere. Yeah, she, everywhere he's like all over the place. He's he's like Obama's DJ. Like I'm not, not many kidding. Can claim that. No, like he literally DJs for for Obama. So shout out to Adam. The the man is a musical library, and you know, being a fan of Prince. He played this song one time and I asked for a copy of it and because this is probably my favorite Prince song. This is called Last Heart. This is West of the Rockies on the Independent FM. Don't go away. I'm here. Genevieve's here. And we're with Professor Chris Bader, author of the book Paranormal America. And we're getting the lowdown on this whole thing to get a better understanding of the paranormal culture here in the U.S. But enjoy this jam. We're going to be right back. West of the Rockies. Here we go. What's up, guys? This is Jorge Diaz of Paranormal Activity, The Marked Ones. And you're listening to West of the Rockies with Frank. This portion of the show is sponsored by Haunted Orange County, your premier source for all things haunted in and around OC. From haunted history ghost walks to ghost group hunting expeditions at some of SoCal's most haunted destinations. Make your fall plans early and book an upcoming tour or investigation today. Visit hauntedoc.com. are back to the second hour west of the rockies i'm frank thank you guys for sticking around as always i'm engineer frank on twitter west of the rockies on facebook don't forget to follow the show on twitter at wotr radio and check out the website wotrradio.com where we post a lot of cool stuff and of course subscribe 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 itunes tuning stitcher spreaker YouTube, YouTube. Oh, uh, wrong one. Uh, 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 porn, no, wait, wait, no, wait, wrong, one. wrong show. It's always I'm joined by Genevieve. You can find her on Twitter at Genevieve Uway or at your local mall raiding the shops, I'm sure. One of the two. <laughs> and you can also find her here every Thursday night at 9 p.m. hosting No Out of Flavors, jokes, facts, musical requests, and a whole lot of more fun. Definitely check that out. It's mm -hmm. a blast. And I'm not saying that just because I'm forced to sit through it, but I actually <laughs> enjoy it. <laughs> of course, we are joined tonight by uh, Professor Uff sociology at Chapman University. Christopher Bader, he, uh, you know, wrote this really, really cool book. Like I said at the beginning of the show, if you're interested in the paranormal, if you research the paranormal, whether via internet or you're out in the field or you do anything paranormal related, I highly, highly encourage people to get this book. I loved it. I read it. I devoured it. And honestly, I almost felt negligent that as a host of this type of show, I had not read this book. Just briefly, um, not to forget to give credit where it needs to be given. Um, also written alongside F. Carson Menken and Joseph Baker, I believe. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want to make him the Ringos of the book. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm sure. I'm not just sure. I am confident that they're head and shoulders above my uh, intelligence, Professor Bader. Uh, what, yeah, what can you I tell? <laughs> what can you tell me about the uh, co-authors of your book? Um, well, first of all, let me say I'm a huge Prince fan too, so I like you more now, Frank. Oh, awesome! <laughs> <laughs> Great minds um, think well, alike. I think that's that's what the that's people say. Right, that's right. There we go. Yeah, but, um, um, so yeah, my two co-authors—they um, are uh, 
One is uh, F. Carson Minkin. He is a professor at Baylor University. He's actually the chair of the department now, and um, great guy. He uh, was not into the paranormal at all when we started this project, but he was someone who was a fantastic survey expert. So um, he was someone that uh, I wouldn't say kicking and screaming, but I definitely dragged him into the paranormal, and it was a lot of fun to uh, see the reaction of someone who had never really spent time around the paranormal when, you know, I took him to haunted houses and on Bigfoot hunts. That was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Nice. Um, Joseph Baker is um, actually a former graduate student of mine at Baylor University. He now has a great career of his own out at East Tennessee State University. He's a professor there. And um, he's a fantastic sociologist who studies religion. Uh, If you want to read some great stuff about religion, look him up. And uh, he's what I think of as one of the foremost scholars in the sociology of religion, certainly one of the foremost young ones. Wow. I know you're currently working on on a second volume to this book. Are they also participating in this, or do you have a new team, or is this more of of a solo effort? It's, it's the same team. Uh, at the time that we wrote the first book, we were all together at Baylor University. I was there as a professor at the time. Mm-hmm. Carson was there, still is. And uh, Joseph was our graduate student. Um, now we're all far flung around the country. So mm-hmm. unfortunately, uh, we couldn't get together as much as we wanted for some of the uh, paranormal excursions we did to update the book. So uh, a lot of the uh, time that was spent um, in the Bigfoot community and with psychics and with um with ghost hunters, I had to do myself this time, not uh, not because I'm the better investigator, just because mm-hmm. that's the way it worked out, uh, being far flung around the country. How different of an experience was that, going to these places on your own, as opposed to having these two gentlemen there to back you up? Uh, not, it, it's been a long time in this uh, in, in paranormal communities before I wrote um, or co-wrote uh, Paranormal America, so it wasn't something that made me uncomfortable um, okay. going into these uh, groups by myself. Um, Probably the uh, the only difference was I didn't have to, um, and uh, this is going to sound bad. I don't mean like it sounded, but I didn't have to sort of um, also kind of coach them on how to uh, manage uh, being in a paranormal community. They they were very quick learners, but um, certainly the first couple of times we went out, they were a little mm-hmm. bit um, frightened of being out on a Bigfoot hunt. Right. Um, and uh, so there was certainly a little bit of a, a learning experience for mm. them, but... Um, I would have loved to have had them there because they're great guys and it's a lot of fun. And it's always great when you're on a research project to have other people there, um, just like paranormal investigators do. Mm-hmm. If someone sees something, you you were hoping to get other people's perspective on what was seen or what was heard, right? And uh, right. it's the same. It's the same when you're doing field work. It's always helpful if you have other eyes there, which would have been obviously useful. And how welcoming was the uh, different categories of paranormal communities to you and and your crew? Uh, they, they were very welcoming. I mean, um, it, as, as I was talking about before, it, it, it took a little while um, mm-hmm. because, uh, as, as I mentioned, um, and rightfully so, I'm not saying rightfully so because that's what we would do, but because that's been the experience. Um, if you have, there have been unfortunately far too many studies where people have researched the paranormal and they've, they've done it from the perspective of let's find out what's wrong with these people. Right. Let's mm-hmm. find out why they believe these things. Let's, um, there's been a number of studies that have tried to paint paranormal believers or experiences as deluded, mentally ill, somehow um, uh, somehow suffering in some way that makes them have these experiences. And so there was some difficulty in getting in some of these communities, um, just letting, uh, making sure that they could trust us, that uh, that wasn't our goal. And, um, and over time, um, 
group started to trust us, and um, the people who are in in the book in mm-hmm. Paranormal America, I've spoken to many of them after the fact, and and uh, they feel like they've been portrayed fairly. That there's no, it's not a not a hit job if you want to call it that. Right, right. No, I understand. All right. Chris, this is one of our favorite moments when we have a guest. It's the moment where we ask about their top five. And in your case tonight, we asked you about your top five favorite paranormal-related books. And uh, I don't know if you have them in any kind of particular order. They don't need to be. Why don't you uh, take us down your list of your top five favorite paranormal-related books? Sure, sure. And this is a list that that changes quite a bit. But I Mm -hmm. would say that... um, uh, I've got a few Bigfoot books on there. I would say that um, a fantastic book for people who want to understand the culture of Bigfoot and how it's evolved over time is a mm-hmm. book called Bigfoot Life and Times of a Legend. Mm-hmm. And um, the the guy's name is kind of tough. It's Joshua Blue Buzz. <laughs> okay. B-L- cool. <laughs> B-L-U space B-U-H-S. So uh, it'll, it's hard to remember the name and it is to remember the title of that book. If you go on to uh, Amazon, look at Bigfoot Life and Times of a Legend, you'll find you'll find that book. And um, you know Joshua is, is is definitely extremely skeptical about Bigfoot, but he has a very fair portrayal of um, where Bigfoot stories have come from, how they've evolved over time, who some of the big figures are in uh, the Bigfoot world, and how they've changed the field. I think um, it'd be really good for people who are interested in Bigfoot to read a book like that, to understand that um, I, I think that one thing that's sometimes lacking in paranormal groups that I spend time with is they don't really understand the history sometimes mm-hmm. of the of what they're doing. True. And um, Bigfoot has a long history, and um, it's worth understanding it if you're going to study it. Absolutely. Um, as far as uh, um, a couple other Bigfoot books are my favorites, I got I, I'm kind of a Bigfoot junkie. If I would have to admit that mm-hmm. uh, while I'm a, I love all aspects of the paranormal. Bigfoot just happens to be my favorite. Maybe it's because I grew up in Washington State that has the most Bigfoot sightings. <laughs> uh, there's a book by a biologist named John Bendernagel called The Discovery of Sasquatch. Hmm. And why that book is so fascinating to me is that um, John spends a lot of time talking about what is the most compelling evidence for Sasquatch, and also what would the Bigfoot community need to do to try to get science to accept that there is such a creature? He spends a lot of time thinking about that, Mm -hmm. what some of the challenges will be, why science might be resistant to Sasquatch. So I think that's a a fantastic one as well. Um, I include uh, a book called The Bigfoot Casebook by Janet and Colin Board as one of my favorites. Uh, That's a book where... um, it has it's a it's a very well written book that goes through a lot of different fascinating Bigfoot cases, but at the back of the book it has this it's well out of date now because the book was first published in the eighties, but it has hundreds of pages of small encapsulations of Bigfoot encounters. Mm-hmm. And um for people who grew up pre internet and that was that was me, mm-hmm. uh, a book like that was like having an internet site. It just had hundreds of pages of Bigfoot sightings wow. and and as a uh, as a teenager, I would I went to a library and photocopied every page of that so I could highlight all the sightings that were in Washington, the ones that were near my house. Mm-hmm. It's a a fascinating book. But um, for people who want to have a um, a more sort of sociological or cultural understanding of of paranormal, particularly things like ghosts and UFOs, uh-huh. I'd really recommend uh, Jacques Vallée's Passport to Magonia. I don't know if you've heard of that book before. No, but, you know, um, I haven't. It's it's an amazing book um, because uh, what uh, Jacques Vallée does is he 
you were talking earlier about how people equate modern UFO sightings to sightings of fairies. Right. Um, and that's what Jacques Vallée does. He looks at um, different experiences that have a lot of similarities to UFO experiences and UFO abductions and UFO contactee experiences over time mm-hmm. and talks about the idea of how there, um, there certainly is a cultural element overlaid over this. Um, Vallée himself, at least in these writings, I don't know if he's evolved or changed on this viewpoint, um, believe that there was something real to the UFO phenomenon, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. that as, as imperfect humans who are affected by our culture, we are constantly viewing this UFO phenomenon differently depending on what point in time in history we're in. Right. Um, the way he described it is we're always looking at the screen when we should be turning around and looking at the projector. And oh, wow. A fascinating way to think about it. Yeah. Um, that uh, if you think about it this way, the projector is the real phenomenon, yeah. whatever it is, which none of us understand, and it's always projecting an image that we're looking at, and that image is going to be colored by the way we grew up, mm-hmm. the culture that we're in, the things that we believe. Um, and in a similar vein to that, there's a book called God's Spirits and Cosmic Guardians, the long title, God's Spirits and Cosmic mm-hmm. Guardians by Hilary Evans. He's now passed, but um, Hilary is a really fascinating guy who wrote a series of books um, about the similarities between um, experiences with gods and uh, experiences with things such as aliens and ghosts and ascended masters. Oh, wow. And really talked about the history of these beliefs and how they are so very similar. And he actually talks about something we talk about in the book, how there are certain types of experiences which may be culturally accepted, Mm -hmm. but they really aren't fundamentally different in an experiential sense from things that aren't, such as UFO experiences. That would be my top five. Very cool. Well, my birthday's in March, so I know what I'm going to be uh, hoping to uh, <laughs> to get. All those are going on my Amazon wish list, I'll tell you that. But you know, it's funny that you mentioned Bigfoot. I mean, Bigfoot, I've had a, a, a healthy, if I may say so, uh, <laughs> I have always had a healthy fascination with Bigfoot. And uh, a friend of mine a, a while back uh, was telling me a, a story as told to him he was saying that uh, apparently, you know, there's people that live in the woods, I guess, like hippies and stuff that they just kind of, you know, decide to live off the grid, as they said. So apparently one of these uh, these gentlemen was was out there, you know, just making his life in the woods when apparently something picked him up in his sleeping bag and, and just carried him away. And he says that apparently the, this Bigfoot must have tripped or something because he he dropped him and he crawled out of his sleeping bag. And when he crawled out of his sleeping bag, he saw this and the word that he used was tripped out. He saw this tripped out Bigfoot. And, you know, the Bigfoot ran in one direction and he ran in the opposite direction. And, uh, you know, it was stories like that that really got my attention. And I know in your book, you also mentioned another uh, story that sounds very, very similar to this, which was the case of a uh, gentleman that apparently was kidnapped by a Bigfoot and held, mm-hmm. I don't know if hostage is the word. Can you tell the, the folks at home a little bit about that that instance? Uh, you must be talking about Albert Osman. Correct. Talking about. Yeah. Yes, he was a, um, a prospector who... Um, was basically taking a prospecting vacation uh, up in Canada. This was this was many years back. He told the story, I believe, for the first time, and mm-hmm. um, he he said it happened in the twenties. I, I can't recall when he when he first told the story. It was many many years after the fact that he told this story to someone else. But um, yeah, he claimed that he um, was out in the deep bush by himself, and uh, he fell asleep and he woke up 
with himself slung over the back of something being mm-hmm. carried in his in his sleeping bag. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so he was essentially, if you can imagine, something had the open end of his sleeping bag held shut, and he was sort of down at the bottom of the sleeping bag being carried through the woods. That would be quite a terrifying experience. Yeah. And um, eventually this uh, thing uh, took him to this uh, cave area that was a, that abutted a canyon and dropped him, and there was a Bigfoot family. That mm-hmm. That's when he described the creatures as... Um, looking large and ape-like, and there was a Bigfoot father and a Bigfoot uh, mother yeah. and a couple of uh, a juvenile Bigfoot. And, uh, and he, spent, he spent some time there and, uh, and was, um, wanted to escape, but every time he would try to leave, the Sasquatches would stop him until um, one day one of the, Sas- the, the father, the big Sasquatch, the one who had apparently kidnapped him, mm-hmm. got interested mm-hmm. in his jar, his can of snuff. Yeah. And um, had seen Albert using this snuff, uh, and in one swoop he took the entire can and just swallowed it. Yeah. <laughs> swallowed the entire can. Of Great snuff. idea. <laughs> uh, got sick and started squealing and and uh, rolling around on the ground, and that was the point that Albert said that all the Sasquatches were distracted, and he was able to run away and escape. And, wow. Um, mm-hmm. So so that was a that was a very big early Sasquatch story that uh, that came out. But it does sound similar to the story that you have about um, a Sasquatch picking up someone in their sleeping bag. Yeah, I yeah. I think that's not the first time we've heard similar, you know, sleeping people yeah. kidnappings. That seems to be quite common. Yeah, it seems it seems to happen quite a bit. There's latest development in the last few years that the possibility that it could be another human. Uh, species of, of sort, I, I find quite an interesting stance. It's funny because that, I encounter that theory, you know, obviously looking online and reading different blogs and articles out there. How much have, from your research and over the years, how much have you seen the internet influence people's opinion of the paranormal? Do you think that the internet has made it just a lot easier to uh, disseminate these ideas and reach people that maybe normally wouldn't consider these as possibilities? Sure. I mean, absolutely. I mean, the internet is a, is an enormous uh, resource that simply wasn't there, um, wasn't there, say, certainly to the extent it is now, 20, mm-hmm. 25 years ago. And I've certainly noticed um, the effect um, just in, in teaching that mm-hmm. um, I've been lecturing on the culture of the paranormal for, for years. And um, not just not just the internet, but the proliferation of paranormal entertainment television, both reality-based and things right. like The X-Files, has had a huge effect on people. Um, when I was first, I first spent time with uh, people who said they'd had UFO abduction experiences way back in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And at that time, when I would lecture on it, or pe- people would come and ask me to talk about what a UFO abduction was, I would have to explain everything to them. I would say, here's what supposedly happens. Here's right. what the alien looks like. It looks, you know, it's, I draw a picture on the board of a, you know, a big, egg-shaped head with big black eyes. Here's what right. people say comes and gets them. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when I do any of these talks, people get bored if I do that. They immediately, oh, yeah, the gray guys. We know about <laughs> that. We've heard it on the Internet. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I've changed, I've changed my tactic now when I'm talking about this to a group of people. I would, before I explain it, I just say, could someone here describe to me what a UFO abduction experience is like? And mm-hmm. I'm always stunned when this thing that it seemed like only a few people knew about, all of a sudden a random student in my class can describe to me exactly what a UFO abduction encounter is supposed to be, and they can come up to the whiteboard and draw a perfect little gray alien. 
Right. And where they're getting that is from the internet and from uh, from YouTube and from um, this proliferation of paranormal reality shows. And it's something that's actually going to prove problematic for the paranormal because if you go back, um, say, to the 1980s and you look at um, one of the big pieces of evidence people would try to use to say UFO abductions must be real or Bigfoot must be real is, oh, the stories are so similar. Mm-hmm. Um, these two people who don't know each other told the same UFO abduction story, therefore it must be real. Well, that's mm-hmm. just simply something we can't do anymore. It's not with the Internet. It's simply not a form of evidence that's useful at all um, mm-hmm. because everyone knows what a UFO abduction right. experience is now. So if someone was to tell you one, you don't know if they've really had that experience or if they've just read about it online. Um, I've got a slightly unrelated question, but um, I've been wondering whether officially or not you've explored beliefs in other countries or whether you've conducted you know, foreign surveys, um, perhaps comparing America to Europe or Asia? Um, unfortunately, that's, that's really tough. Um, I have explored those other, those other surveys, and there do tend to be um, generally um, higher levels of paranormal belief in um, the United Kingdom than there, is, than there are in the U.S. and in Sweden than there are in the U.S. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is, that, um, is that there aren't very many people researching the paranormal from a, from a very careful survey scientific approach, yeah. which makes it hard to compare responses. Um, there have been, for example, there's a lot of surveys out there of the paranormal that have been conducted in a certain region of the United States. There's a great survey that asks a lot of paranormal questions that was only asked in the South. And um, that's the case in a lot of other countries, that there are great surveys that have included some paranormal questions, but they aren't representative of the country as a whole. Yeah. So it just makes those kind of comparisons really difficult. Mm-hmm. And, um, and surveys don't, um, unfortunately... Um, so the social sciences don't consider the paranormal something that's very important to study. Therefore, it's not often included on surveys, mm-hmm. which makes such comparisons really difficult. On a personal level, have you noticed anything, you know, just, just talking to people, to friends from, from different places? Um, personally, um, well, this is both from talking to friends and from some of my own readings. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that's happening certainly in a lot of, a lot of countries in, in Europe is that... Um, a lot of countries are secularizing uh, at a far faster rate than the United States is. And by secularizing, I'm meaning you have a lot more people who are saying that they have no religion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that they don't that they don't believe in um, God. They may believe in God, but they just don't particularly ascribe to any certain belief system. They mm-hmm. just say, I believe in things, but I don't know exactly what it is. And um, people who say that they believe in something beyond the physical world, but they don't know exactly what it is, are much more likely to believe in the paranormal than other kinds of people. Um, someone who's really invested in one particular form of religious belief, so if I was to say to you, I believe in the divinity of Jesus, and the Bible mm-hmm. is exactly God's word, exactly what he meant to say, yeah. then I, if, in a certain sense, if you, want, if you think about it, I've doubled down all my spirituality in one place, and I don't have very much left over to spread around other places. Mm-hmm. And um, so certainly the evidence from, um, from uh, Western Europe is that religiosity there is much more taking these sort of non-institutional forms, and therefore um, the paranormal appears to be increasing. Mm-hmm. This is my impressionistic view from talking to scholars over there, from the reading that I've done. 
Unfortunately, there hasn't been enough good quality survey research to really confirm that. It's just an impression. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned at the, at the top of the show, something that we have discussed on and off the air, the U.S. is very unique in that regard. Uh, I can't think of any other uh, place in the world where the paranormal has become as mainstream as it has here with the number of uh, conventions and lectures and, mm-hmm. you know, book mm-hmm. signings, you name it, you know, shows like this. Uh, and I guess that's what you're trying to answer with, with this book. It's, it's trying to figure out why that is happening here. And it's funny because deep into the book, you, you mentioned that about two-thirds of Americans believe in some aspect of the paranormal. And ironically, that makes the people that don't believe the, the minority. How can you explain that? Well, part of it is... Um that we found interesting talking to people is when we say that two-thirds of Americans believe in something paranormal, we literally mean something. Mm-hmm. What, what I mean is that we found a lot of what we call paranormal particularism in the United States. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you think of it this way, um, we found a lot of people who would say, yeah, I think there's something to Bigfoot, but UFOs, please. How right. do you believe in something so stupid? Or someone would say, yeah, I believe in ghosts, but maybe dumped out to this. And we find a lot of this um, particularistic belief where where a lot of people in America are particularly invested in one form of paranormal belief, but don't believe in others. And, mm-hmm. and that's something we found fascinating. Really, you are correct that if you don't believe in anything paranormal in this country, you're the odd man out. Yeah. If, um, if I was to grab someone at random off the street, I couldn't tell you immediately which, which of these things they believe in if they're a Bigfooter, a UFO person, mm-hmm. a ghost person, a psychic person. But my guess would be, if I was a betting person, my guess would be you believe in something paranormal. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it just uh, is likely due to the fact that America has always been an extremely religious and spiritual country, um, that uh, the majority of Americans still claim to be some sort of religion. Mm-hmm. And um, as you mentioned, that is getting to be more and more unique amongst uh, industrialized Western countries. Um, so we are an extraordinarily religious country compared to other industrial, most other industrial Westernized countries. And um, we have enormous fascination as Americans with the, uh, the spiritual. And um, one thing we haven't talked about is that the type of person we found altogether in the United States who is most likely to believe in something paranormal is a person who is somewhat religious. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is if you are someone who says, no, there's no way there's a God, there's no way there's anything beyond what I can see, right. well, you're unlikely to also believe in ghosts and UFOs, other things that you can't see or prove. Um, if you're someone who is extraordinarily deeply evangelical Christian, you've got all your eggs in one basket. You don't spread them around and right. things. So we find that that person who tends to be the most paranormal is someone who goes to church once in a while mm-hmm. someone who someone who thinks that the bible has something to say but that it isn't the exact word of god that needs to be taken literally and um someone who believes that um jesus probably has something important to tell us but he isn't necessarily the one and only son of god that you have to accept or you're going to hell you know a very literal belief like mm-hmm. that um so part of it is that we are a deeply religious country and it seems to be from what we're finding that there is a certain level of spirituality that's required to be invested in the paranormal. 
So any country which tends to have much higher levels of atheism or strict disbelief in all forms of spirituality mm -hmm. won't be very paranormal either. Wow, that is really fascinating. In case in point, there's a comment in the chat room mm -hmm. by Ms. Becky uh, Barrett who says, I'm a believer in Christ, but think that there is more out there than, than we know. And uh, that kind of sums it up pretty well. One of the things that I, and, and you mentioned uh, on your book as well, is how some of these beliefs pretty much turn into uh, cults, you know, case in point, the Raelians. You, right. What can you tell me about that? You know, we have Kevin's Gate, and there's a few other UFO cults out there, and it seems like a lot of the guys, and, and ladies for that matter, I don't want to single anybody out, uh, but uh, I think it's mainly men who have a sighting or claim to have encounters with aliens and then they go on and pretty much make a, a little religion out of it. Like, you know, George Adamski or Billy May or, uh, you know, the Heaven's Gate and all that. I remember reading a book saying that humans have this uh, uh, desire to worship and that's why you find tribes in the middle of nowhere that worship the sun, et cetera, et cetera. Is that what is happening? Do we just need a leader? The people just are always looking for somebody to follow and that's why these people go on and create these uh, religions, if you will? I think that's a, a quite quite a big possibility. I think another another thing, though, is you mentioned speaking in tongues. Really, if you, if you remove all of the cultural um, baggage From it, what is the difference between speaking in tongues and someone who claims they're channeling an ascended master? Right. Which I just, you know, experienced two weeks ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> There is no difference between the two. Someone is closing their eyes, speaking in a strange mm -hmm. tongue, and claiming they're, re they're receiving a special message or giving a special message to the gods or the ascended masters. They're very similar. The only difference is essentially how culture perceives them. And right. so there's there's always a lot of similarity between paranormal experiences and the religion. The only religion, the only difference between the two is religion is based on this codified sense of, set of principles and is based around worship. And so there's always going to be a pull for the paranormal to turn into religion, and we see that happen over time. There's a there's Unarius down in here in Southern California, the Aetherius Society, the Raelians, yeah, Heaven's Gate, the Solar Temple, um, and. To be honest, I think we'll see this more. Um, let's suppose, I hope this isn't the case, but let's suppose 100 years from now, we are no closer to finding Bigfoot than we are right now. Right. Well, people are going to have a choice to make at that point. The choice is, well, should we give up on science and think of this as worship? Now, they're not, it's not going to be mm -hmm. something where someone literally makes that decision. It's going to be an evolution that may happen over time. That um, if if we can if the paranormal continues to be resistant to scientific proof, you might see an evolution where people decide to investigate the paranormal in a different way through faith. Gotcha. And, um, so I see the similarity here. Is you're you're absolutely right. It's very astute observation that every religion, not just the paranormal one, but every religion when it forms requires a charismatic figure that can bring people together mm -hmm. around a set of ideas. That's what Joseph Smith was with the founding of Mormonism. Right. Mm -hmm. And and religions can't happen without that person, and most religions die on the vine. If you wake up tomorrow, Frank, and you've had a, a vision from God mm -hmm. and try to start a religion, you're probably not going to get very far, not because of your lack of charisma or anything. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that. I'm saying that it's just very difficult to start a religion yeah. and extremely difficult to get people to believe you. So religions are constantly forming and constantly failing, and we only hear about the ones that gain some measure of success. So there are probably, at this point, five people around the country that we have no idea who they are who have been in contact with the aliens that are trying to start religions. And more right. than likely they will fail and we will never hear of them. 
So I, I don't think of it so much as there's something special or unique going on now mm-hmm. as UFO beliefs have a lot in common with religion in the first place. Yeah. Some people are going to take take that similarity and try to push it into, into religion. Other people are going to say, this is something different. Let's try to use science. I actually wanted to ask you uh, something before I forget, because one of the things that uh, a lot of people have said over time was, uh, and you quote Karl Marx, uh, you know, who said that religion is the opiate of the masses. Mm-hmm. One of the things that people have said over time is that, well, you know, it's the lesser educated that believe in these things, uh, whether it's religion or aliens or whatnot. And some people have argued that, well, you know, if you're caught up in the materialistic world, you know, uh, you are not open to some of these things or open to the possibility of life in other planets or Bigfoot, etc., However, the further you read into the book, it seems like there is almost like a a bit of a conflict there because people who are well off are quite interested in a lot of these paranormal things just as much as the people that maybe are not as in a stable financial situation. Can you tell us a little bit about what your findings were when you were looking at paranormal beliefs in that regard? Sure. Well, I mean, first thing, yeah, we were trying to either confirm or... um or cast down on certain stereotypes, and there's a stereotype of, of paranormal believers or experiences that these are people who, if I can just be crude about it, are mm-hmm. too dumb to know better. That's, yeah. that, that's the general stereotype you will get. These are people who have a low level of education. They don't know any better. That's why they believe in these things. It's a way to sort of insult people who have these beliefs or experiences, and we just found that's just not the case. Um, if you look in general, there are some... You know, the paranormal is very complicated, and, and people who like to make simplistic arguments about it like to um, say very simplistic things about it. But, in fact, there are several, um, you know, for example, uh, people who have a higher level of education are actually more interested in uh, trying to investigate psychic phenomena. Mm-hmm. But that's a general relationship we found across our entire sample. Um, and uh, the popular conception would be, oh, if you're someone who investigates psychic phenomena, you must be someone who has no education. And uh, we find that, in fact, um, people who have higher levels of income, higher level of education, are interested in several paranormal phenomena. So it's just, it's simply not true. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of that, a lot of those types of stereotypes have been produced by people who want the paranormal to go away, who are upset by the fact that so many people believe in it. Um, As a sociologist, this is going to sound weird, but I don't care. Hmm. I'm interested in culture and society and how it changes over time. I don't have an axe to grind either trying to convince you that the paranormal exists or that it doesn't. Right. Um, Right. And so I'm not invested personally in any of these stereotypes. I don't have an axe to grind trying to prove that someone who believes in this, in the paranormal, is is somehow strange. Mm -hmm. And the more time you spend with with people who've had these experiences, unless you choose the definition that this person must be strange because they've seen Sasquatch. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the people I've met, I've met some oddballs, let's be clear, but right. um, most of the people I've met are people that you would never know that they've had this type of experience mm-hmm. unless they choose to reveal it to you. Yeah. Um, so those stereotypes just are, are, are not true. Um, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's something that's been portrayed in the media because the media likes very simplistic answers to very complex right. questions. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I was particularly interested in your observation that those who believe in a certain 
topic, belief, um, tend to not be the same as those who, you know, actively engage in research, you know, devote a lot of their time into looking into a certain topic. Um, one of my kind of personal observations or at least like theories was, um, you know, do you, do you think that the act of in-depth, you know, further research rather than mere belief, in fact, leads to greater criticism of a topic, um, you know, leading to lower belief rates. Um, I don't know if you can tell us a bit about that. that that's a great question. I mean, that is simply something that we haven't uh, followed over time. Do you, you mean to find out if someone who has investigated, uh, say, UFOs comes away more skeptical than before? Yeah, because, I mean, you assume that someone who spends you know, 12 hours a day reading up on these things, watching documentaries, is is a firm believer, is, is you know, obsessed with this topic. And yet, you know, the, the gist I got from your book is that often the people who actively engage in research are, are less likely to believe something than just, you know, pure believers. Sure. I, I've definitely found people who um, spend more time um, researching paranormal topics tend to be... Um, much more critical of of certain um, of certain beliefs or what I've really found to be honest is the people who are very focused on one type of paranormal phenomenon, mm -hmm. say a Bigfoot researcher or a UFO researcher, they do tend to be very critical. The more they read, the more critical they tend to be. But they also actually tend to be critical of other paranormal phenomenon, and that's that's something that we found a little odd that. Um, we sort of thought going into this, well, someone who is invested in Bigfoot research is probably going to feel some sort of um, sense of shared identity with someone who has had a ghost experience. Yeah. But we actually found that people who are extremely invested in one of these things actually tend to say, oh, we don't like that stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're, into, we're into Bigfoot, but we don't believe in ghosts and UFOs, too, because yeah. that would mean we're strange. Um, so, um, But what we have not done yet is we have not asked people and it's a great question, but we just haven't asked them yet. Um, how has your research affected your overall attitude? Our impressions yeah. are simply based on our field work. Yeah, no, I mean, it just seemed almost ironic to me that the more obsessive and the more you look into a topic, it, it seems like there's an almost a, a negative correlation. Um, mm -hmm. Another quick question. Um, you were developing on the idea of um, paranormal particularists earlier on. Um, could you tell us a bit more about paranormal generalists, but maybe give us an example. Sure. Um, by a paranormal generalist, I mean, a paranormal particularist would be, for example, and I give this example in the book, a guy named David who, that's a pseudonym, but he um, believes in Bigfoot only mm -hmm. because he's seen one, and he does not consider himself a paranormalist. He says, I believe in this because I saw it. I'm not some, and he actually uses very derogatory terms. For people who've had other types of experiences, oh, wow. mm -hmm. a paranormal a paranormal generalist is someone like a woman I met named Laura, who mm -hmm. she has had multiple UFO abduction experiences, mm -hmm. multiple ghost encounters. She uh, has not seen one, but believes in Bigfoot, engages in all forms of shamanism and Wicca. So she is someone who is um, simultaneously involved in multiple forms of the paranormal. Mm -hmm. And one of the big differences we found is that. People who are paranormal generalists who believe in a lot more, a lot of paranormal things at once tend to be fairly unconventional people in general. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I mean by that is I'm not using unconventional as a negative term. I love unconventional people. They're a lot more fun than conventional people. But um, 
unconventional people are people who really don't care what other people in society think of them, yeah. who maybe don't have um, don't have a high income, high status job that they are afraid of losing. These are people who essentially, mm-hmm. if you want to think of it, have a lower stake in conformity. They mm-hmm. don't tend to believe in more common religious beliefs than whatever society they're in. So these are people who are unconventional and sort of proudly unconventional. Mm-hmm. And we found that um, people who believe in one paranormal thing very strongly tend to be very concerned what you think of them and oftentimes tend to be very mo- highly motivated to try to prove to you that it's real. Mm-hmm. So if you've uh, ever, if the two of you have ever met someone who has had a Bigfoot sighting and no other type of paranormal experience, that person will oftentimes be invested in, they really want to prove to you that Bigfoot is real because if it's not, they're a weirdo. Mm-hmm. Right. And you yeah. might think they're a weirdo. But someone who, if you have friends who believe in UFOs and ghosts and Bigfoot and conspiracies all at the same time, they tend to be very different than that. They tend to be very unconventional, proudly unconventional, and they just really don't care if you think they're a little weird. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the pro- what we discuss in the book is just that when we're talking about the paranormal, they oftentimes don't consider this. The paranormal generalists and paranormal particularists are very different types of people, don't really get along with each other. And mm-hmm. just the fact that those two groups of people exist within the paranormal community means that we can't just paint the entire community with one brush. Yeah. Say, this yeah. is the thing, single type of person who believes in the paranormal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope that answered your question. No, no, absolutely. Um, this one's not, I guess, um, completely sociology related, but just because it was a fascinating um, story or anecdote in your book. Um, you actually met with Paul Ingram, who spent about sixteen? Who spent about sixteen years in prison for a crime he may or may not have committed, but confessed to? Could you just tell us a little bit about that, um, just to enlighten the listeners? Well, um, there was uh, a real scare in this country back in the eighties and nineties called the Satanism scare, mm-hmm. where you had a lot of people believing that there were secretive underground networks of Satanists that were abusing people in satanic ceremonies and then erasing their memories. Mm-hmm. And this was this was huge in the 1980s and 1990s. It, it caused all kinds of court cases. The case I talk about in the book is one of them where a guy named Paul Ingram, that's his real name, um, mm-hmm. was an, uh, an undersheriff in Thurston County, Washington, who um, whose daughters reported that he was the <sighs> ringleader of one of these satanic cults that... Mm-hmm. Um, Supposedly, he was the ringleader of a group that was continually molesting his daughters, killing people in satanic ceremonies, and somehow everyone's memories were sort of becoming erased. And he uh, admitted when he was uh, charged with these things, he said, yes, it's true. I am a Satanist. I did all of these things. And ultimately, he was convicted based on that confession and spent uh, many years in, in prison under an assumed name because it was believed if uh, it was known what he was charged with, something would happen to him similar to what happened to Jeffrey Dahmer, where he'd be killed in prison. Um, a lot of people, um, I don't have any shame in saying myself included, uh, do not believe, in fact, any of that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, Ingram, uh, Ingram, in fact, admitted to this, abuse without remembering it, uh, because his pastor told him if he did not admit to satanic abuse, the devil would have control of his mind wow. and therefore go to hell. Um, so the ironic thing is this guy admitted to being a Satanist because he was such a devout Christian. So it's very ironic in that wow. sense. 
mm-hmm. that his pastor kept telling him, the reason you don't remember these things that your daughters and your family are saying is because Satan has control of your mind. If you admit to them, Satan's control will be released, and you will remember these things. And um, it's a really awful case. I go into quite a bit of detail in the book, and there's an excellent book uh, about it, uh, the uh, entire book about the case called Remembering Satan, Mm-hmm. which wow. uh, if you'd asked me this question earlier, Genevieve, before the break, it would have been in my top five books. So please go read Remembering <laughs> Right. We'll include it. We'll make it a top six. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Um, and uh, basically, um, in, in a nutshell, um, the this is one of those strange cases where the physical evidence was actually contrary to the claims that were mm-hmm. made. This is one of the most powerful, persuasive pieces of evidence that none of this actually happened is that um, the two daughters claimed, this is going to be a little nasty, but they claimed to have um, had ritualistic abortions with swords. Mm. They claimed to have had horns sewn to the top of their heads, tails Mm -hmm. sewn to their bodies, and stabbed numerous times. They were actually given a physical examination at Harborview Hospital in Seattle, found to have no scars in their body whatsoever, except for an appendectomy scar on one of them, and were in fact found to have never been pregnant, and uh, wow. one of the girls had her hymen intact, that mm-hmm. um, she, in fact, was a virgin. Um, mm-hmm. I, w- I was told by one of the people investigating this case that Satanists had managed to learn the power of repairing oh, wow. hymen. Wow. Wowies. Jeez. So, <laughs> so this was just a, a completely bonkers um, sort of set of conspiracies that were going around mm-hmm. in the 80s and 90s that were really scary because um, if you're... Um, friend or your cousin or your sister went into therapy and came out believing that she, that you were a Satanist that was erasing her memory. Back in the 1980s and 1990s, you could have been arrested. You could have had your children taken away oh. because a lot of social yeah. workers and police officers started believing in this yeah. stuff. And, and um, that's why we put it in, in the in the book. It's a little bit ironic, actually, the reason it's in the book is that is that we always hear about certainly... I have always heard about that we need to be afraid of people who have had paranormal experiences or believe in the paranormal. I can't tell you the number of times family members and friends have said, aren't you afraid to go hang out with these people? Mm-hmm. And I just, I'm just, it baffles me. I say, no, they're nice. I have no problem. <laughs> I've never had any right. problem. I have yet to, I've yet to be attacked by a Bigfoot hunter or a ghost investigator. But um, the reason the Ingram stories in the book is that when you have strange beliefs with the power of conventional religion behind them, mm-hmm. those can be very dangerous. Those can be extremely dangerous. Yeah. yeah. And that's why, that's why it's in the book, as we're saying, listen, it's not dangerous if someone believes mm-hmm. they've seen a UFO. When you've got beliefs like this, police officers believe in them, social workers believe in them, and you've got the power of conventional religion behind them, that can be very dangerous. Yeah, it ruins yeah. people's we're sort of, lives. We're sort of saying, stop looking at these people, look over here, this can be much worse. I got the green light to just go over a, a few minutes here, and I want to make wise use of, the, of these scarce minutes we have left for one last question, uh, Chris. And that question is, again, recently in the last you know couple of years, uh, the UFO people didn't mingle with the uh, Bigfoot people and vice versa. It was like you had all these little camps. And lately, lately, you find Bigfoot people talking about, well, you know, we've seen UFOs or strange lights in the woods, and then, bam, there's a Bigfoot. And then the UFO people are becoming a little bit more accepting of the Bigfoot people. And now I'm, I'm beginning to see a lot of conspiracies falling under just one big umbrella where all of these 
phenomena are linked together. Is that something that you saw in your research? And do you see that gaining any popularity? Absolutely. Uh, the answer is yes to both. That I've mm -hmm. seen that in my research. It's one of the most interesting things I've seen in my research is that, and there's a section on it in the book, that um, mm -hmm. someone who believes that Bigfoot is just a big gorilla or a gigantopithecus or something, yeah. um, it really drives them crazy. And mm -hmm. I know a lot of these people personally, when someone comes forward say, hey, I saw Bigfoot jump out of a portal. Because... Yeah. Um, Someone who believes that Bigfoot is a gigantopithecus is, is about shooting one or tagging one or getting DNA. There's mm -hmm. no point in doing any of those things. And in fact, they've been wasting their time if Bigfoot just jumps in and out of portals. Right. So I've um, been seeing that for a long time, but there's been this division that's been growing within the UFO, excuse me, the Bigfoot community between the people who are sort of Bigfoot paranormalists yeah. and the, one, the ones who are um, sort of more scientific, trying to be scientific Bigfoot types. Those, those groups can oftentimes really dislike each other. I just yeah. spent um, time at a Bigfoot conference up in Washington State where there were people from both camps presenting and, and it was like watching a food fight or something. Oh, they, wow. would hang out in different, they would hang out in different corners. Oftentimes they didn't like each other. You would hear one making fun of the other because these are two groups, mm -hmm. uh, particularly someone who believes that Bigfoot is a giant ape. Those people are very threatening mm -hmm. because um, they're people who believe that Bigfoot is a giant ape are very, very worried that everyone will think they are like those people right. that, uh, that believe that Bigfoot's coming out of a, out of a portal. Um, but I do see that growing, and I think it's going to grow more and more the longer we go without discovering one. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Bigfoot has been gaining powers over the years. Um, yeah, telepathic that, power, hypnotic powers, uh, yeah, multi-dimensions multi up to the fifth dimension yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's true. Well, not not even that. Even among the people who believe that Bigfoot is an animal, he's getting more and more powers. He keeps getting smarter and smarter and smarter. Mm -hmm. But there are people who believe that Bigfoot's telepathic. But if you go yeah. to someone who believes that Bigfoot is a giant ape, the longer they go without catching one, the more they start to say things such as, "Well, Bigfoot knows there's a camera." Uh -huh. there. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. He can yeah. become invisible. Um, oh, well, Mm -hmm. That's right. Or uh, Bigfoot um, Bigfoot can use something called infrasound mm -hmm. to make a strange noise in its chest that will make you turn away right before you would see it. Mm. Wow. So I'm starting, yeah. I'm starting oh, the to see interesting people one. Are, Sorry. Yeah, well, I'm oh. starting to see people who are really sort of more um, scientific in their orientation or trying to be starting to say things like that. And why are they yeah. saying it? Because they have to somehow explain why right. they can't catch one. Right, right. Why do they put up hundreds of cameras and they still can't get a picture? Yeah. Well, either that means there's not a Bigfoot there, it's just jumping into another dimension, or you've got to explain, well, it's just a really, really, really smart monkey. It knows where the cameras are and it avoids them. Mm -hmm. The point I'm trying to make here is that if, imagine if we go another 25 years and none of these people, despite their best efforts, mm -hmm. manages to catch one, what are they going to be left with? Right. Um, it's either going to be the smartest thing that's ever existed on the planet, or most people are going to move towards a more paranormal bent. And I would definitely predict that if we don't catch one, if there isn't one in another couple of decades, there just won't be room left for people to say, this is just a monkey. How right. can they? The, the Bigfoot community is going to be under a lot of pressure in the next 20 years, I think, because Bigfoot's going to keep getting smarter and smarter and smarter if they can't catch one. And to be clear... If it sounds like I'm negative towards the community, I love mm -hmm. these guys. I want them yeah. to catch one. I hope they catch one tomorrow. Yeah, no, mm -hmm. I, believe me, I'm mm -hmm. right there. I'm right there with you. On that but note, if they can, oh. what does it mean? On that note, um, that's not for this time. But if we ever have the honor of having you on the show again, 
I'd love to question about Skinwalker Ranch in that case, because oh, yeah. that's the direction we're going in. <laughs> Play more prints, I'll be back. <laughs> awesome. And again, the name of the book is Paranormal America, Ghost Encounters, UFO Sightings, Bigfoot Hunts, and Other Curiosities in Religion and Culture by our guest tonight, Christopher Bader. And uh, obviously with the help of F. Carson Megan and Joseph O. Baker. Excellent, excellent book. You can pick it up on Amazon. I believe you can get the hard copy and the Kindle version, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's yeah, there's a hard copy, paperback, and Kindle version. I always recommend people, you know, there's always people out there who say, like, oh, I don't want to buy a book. Well, it's great that Amazon gives you a free sample. So if you're not sure, then just just read that first chapter and see what you think. No, yeah, it's an amazing book. In the middle of excellent information, you know, it has charts and graphs and some really interesting accounts of the paranormal. I believe it, it's an amazing book. Chris, where can people find you if they want to learn a little bit more about you and, and, and stuff like that? Where, where can they find me? Like my home address? Yeah, 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 yeah please. Home, uh, phone yeah. number, social security. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, I'm... Uh, <laughs> I am, uh, you know, a professor at Chapman University, and, and my uh, yeah, anyone who wanted to contact me to ask questions about the book or anything is uh, at uh, I'm just a Bader, my last name at Chapman.edu. Anyone's welcome to uh, to email me. And in fact, if you have something um, very terrifying and paranormal going on at your house, contact me. I will come there, and I'm paranormal poison, so it will go away. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Chris, what can I say? This has been a, a, a way too much fun to, to be a, a serious topic. But you know what? Uh, a lot of times uh, this stuff is, is fun and is interesting. And uh, like I always say, you know, if anything, it just makes, uh, you know, it gets the juices, the old brain juices flowing. And, you know, I think it's good to have a healthy curiosity of the world that we live in. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time for being with us tonight and for treating the uh, paranormal in such a respectful way. I think the most non-biased view we've had. Absolutely. Ever so far. (laughs) Thank you so much, Chris, and have a a great rest of of your night and and a great new year. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good night. That was great. No, I'm telling you, I highly, highly recommend this book, uh, Paranormal America. Look it up. We'll be posting a link. You can get it on Amazon. and uh, It's clear, it's succinct, and it's interesting. Yeah, no, it's it, great. It has it has um, a good dose of, you know, academic survey analyses alongside a nice dose of paranormal anecdotes, yeah. little stories of where they went and what they observed. I, I kind of love that, you know, dotting around stories yeah. amongst facts and yeah no you know, that it, sort of thing again great book definitely check it out and that being said thank you guys for tuning in we really appreciate it take care be safe god bless don't do anything too crazy we want to see you back next week Genevieve, thank you very much thank you very much what happened to your voice there <laughs> i have no idea a huge thanks again to uh, christopher professor christopher bader and uh you know we're talking about bigfoot bigfoot popped up a lot tonight in the conversation so we're gonna go out with this nirvana track called very ape because hey that's kind of fitting i don't want to tick off any bigfoot researchers out there i'm not saying that it's an ape but i'm not saying it isn't it's just nirvana saying it's just nirvana saying it so take it easy guys we'll see you next week bye bye (laughs) west of the rockies with frank the engineer on the independent fm los angeles